0: Hello, everyone, and welcome to the official live book signing and Q&A for the Authoritarian Moment. I am your host, Alicia Krause, and we are here with the one and only Ben Shapiro, who's super duper excited to be here.
1: Always. Obvi. Always.
0: So tonight is a big night because Ben will be answering all of your questions live for the entire hour. But that's only if you bought a book, not just any book an autographed book. So head on over to dailywire.com Ben to purchase your autographed copy of The Authoritarian Moment right now. There will be a text box for you to ask Ben a question at checkout. And you'll also get an email with the same text box so you can submit a question at your very own convenience. So go submit your questions now. And Ben, it's good to see you.
1: Alicia Krause's I Live and Breathe. Here I am. What are you doing in this state, the uh, free state of Florida?
0: Only you could bring me back to my birthplace. I'm
1: sure, this place is great. That and
0: the amazing Cuban food.
1: It's and also the freedom.
0: Yeah, I mean the freedom's nice.
1: Did you breathe the air of the freedom? Did yeah, you come in? Also, you're like, too wow. Too much
0: humidity. It's not good with the skin. If I get uncon- like really bad oily, makeup's gonna have to roll in here. It's gonna be a thing.
1: You'd be amazed the amount of money that you save in taxes just to fix those problems.
0: But not all of us can be as rich as you, sir.
1: Well, I mean, that is an unfortunate reality of life.
0: And you can make Ben richer by buying his book. <laughs> I mean, I don't understand, though, how I've only been here for three days, and I'm more tan than you, and you've lived here for, what, like six months now? I mean,
1: we've known this for a long time. I'm like a vampire. I sparkle in the sun. That is yes. my appeal. Yes. Like, they open the casket, and I just kind of roll on out. Like Joe Biden, except less old.
0: Do you think vampires are authoritarian?
1: I don't even know where to go with this. <laughs> <laughs>
0: All right, if you haven't, can you introduce the book to everybody? I read it on the plane out. It, it was a five hour flight. Mm-hmm. I wish you'd done the audio version. Then it would have been done in like two hours. It's true,
1: my, my wife has the same issue. Like she has the opportunity to read all of my books early and does it never. Really? Instead she waits for the audio version to come out and then she listens to it yeah. in the car. Um, And because she deals with me on a regular basis, she can listen to me at two times speed. So she can knock out the entire book in like three hours, three and a half hours. She's
0: an audible learner. She's like, I just been on on normal speed, as regular. Also
1: because if you give my wife a book and she reads like two pages of it, she's out like a light, like done. Yeah, which is amazing because she's like, as we know, a medical doctor, which means she's had to read many How did she get through medical school? Um, Coffee, (laughs) uh, yeah.
0: So can you introduce the book? I know you've been talking about it on your show a lot. I really enjoyed it. I'm kind of a history nerd. So I appreciated how you went through like an actual explanation of authoritarianism and where we've seen it in history. And I don't want to give anything away. Yeah, so
1: I mean, the the basic idea of the book, and I think we all feel it on the right and in the center and even on the moderate left, Mm -hmm. is that we feel right now in America as though all of the institutions are arrayed against your ability to speak freely. freely. And by polling data, this is true. If you you look at every subgroup politically in the United States, with the exception of people who consider themselves far left, every single subgroup in the United States feels as though they are unable to speak freely. They're going to be met with social ostracization. They're going to be met with their bosses yelling at them Mm -hmm. or maybe them losing their jobs. They're going to be crowd mobbed on on Facebook or Twitter. They're going to be sort of unpersoned online. Uh, and they might even be excised from sort of normal everyday activities. People won't talk to them. People won't patronize their business. Now, these, th- this, this move is somewhat unique in modern American history, for sure. And the extent of it is really unique. And that is because all of these institutions, which we sort of took for granted as neutral, have now been, as I talk about in the book, renormalized. Basically, a small group of people have taken over these institutions. And because there are a lot of people in the middle who are conflict averse and and didn't want to get in fights, they basically said okay to that. And the result is that virtually every major institution in American life, whether you're talking about the media, whether you're talking about social media, whether you're talking about entertainment, scientific institutions, as we're now seeing with the CDC, mm-hmm. whether you're talking about the military. I mean, that was a shocker. I think, I'm not sure how many conservatives thought that the military was going to be woke but that apparently is now on the way. You're seeing it in virtually every institution of American life, the renormalization of these institutions and then weaponization of the institutions to tell you to shut up and excise you from... from American life.
0: And I think the audience has a fear that I kind of have, too, Is that as we've seen and you've been talking about on your show, how Democrats are now using the government and everything else and the media is going along with it. And, and I think the major question is how do we fight it, like and on a small scale and a broader scale? So
1: I think there, there are a couple of things that, that we can do. Uh, one is that we can you know, take the sort of conservative approach to this and we can create alternatives. So that's what we did at Daily Wire. Uh, you're seeing this happen in a wide variety of businesses. That's not actually my preferred solution. My preferred solution is that we push a lot of these businesses, particularly corporate, you know, the corporate world, back into neutrality. I think that we need neutral spaces. I think sports ought to be a neutral space and entertainment ought to be a neutral space. If that's not gonna happen, we have to create alternatives. Mm -hmm. If we are going to take back institutions and re-renormalize them, like make them normal again, then what that's going to require is an actual cohesive concerted move. So to understand, how to do that, we sort of have to understand how these institutions got there in the first place. The the basic idea is that these institutions ended up left wing because you had a small group of very motivated and intransigent people. And they went to everybody in the middle and they said, listen, if you just give us what we want, we'll shut up. We'll leave you alone. And a lot of people in the middle went, oh, okay. And you see this happen like every day in your family. Right? There's one person in your family who just insists- I love insists, the vegan
0: analogy. Yes. I mean, it, not to give it away and not to dump on- No, it's another, fine. Who we both know and love is vegan, but-
1: I mean, listen, I I, I I understand veganism and I, I kind of have some vegan tendencies, except that meat tastes amazing. But, the, but the, the vegan analogy is one put forward by uh, Nisim Nicholas Taleb. And his basic analogy, you have a family of four, one member of the family says, usually the daughter, says, I'm vegan now. And now the entire family has a choice, right? Mom has a choice when she makes dinner that night. She says, I can either make two meals, one for everybody else and one for the vegan kid, or we're all eating vegan tonight. And then you take that family, you put them in a block party with four other families. And the family says, listen, we're all eating vegan because of little Jessica over here. And so we're gonna eat vegan. You know, you're free to cook meat or you can just make vegan for everybody, but we need vegan. Yeah. And so now the hostess of the party has to figure out, okay, do I cook vegan for everybody or do I make two separate meals, which is more of a pain in the butt. And so now you've had one person renormalize 20 people. Everybody's eating vegan now. And and you see this routinely throughout institutions. You'll have a small group of people at an institution who say, you know what, we need diversity training. And the diversity training we need, is diversity so bad? Diversity is good, right? I mean, like, why are you anti-diversity? And if you don't go along with us on this, then we're going to shout that you're racist and we're going to go to the New York Times and we're going to have them call you racist. And that is going to have a market impact on how the public sees your business. Mm -hmm. And so corporate heads tend to cower in fear over this. You see this with advertisers all the time, right? Advertisers are constantly getting two, three tweets and suddenly... they they freak out. It's like, well, that's two people who are upset. But the reason they're upset is because they have an internal group of employees who don't like that they're advertising in the first place on a wide variety of sources. And they understand that those employees will eventually go to the media. And it takes some actual corporate stones to say to your own employees, no, we're not doing any of that.
0: So we do want to get to people's questions, which is really exciting. Again, if you haven't bought the book yet, head on over to dailywire.com slash Ben to purchase your autographed copy of this really cool book right here. It's only $30. I mean, it's not going to make him that much richer, but it'll make you a lot more educated and happy and entertaining. <laughs> and then you can trigger some liberals on your summer vacation. It's a great deal. And you're getting Ben's signature. You can go and also ask your, have your questions answered live tonight over the next hour. And if your question is not answered, don't worry. You're still going to get your autographed copy of the book. And we have some fun things planned for you tonight. But We're going to kick, get it, kick things off, you guessed it, with an authoritarian moment.
1: I did not see that coming. Is this your boot? Well, I did not see that coming.
0: (laughs) All right. (laughs) So right now, what we have, ooh, here we go. This clip is from 1933 and a parade was held for the promotion of the National Recovery Administration. We're gonna roll the clip. In September 1933, the government sponsored a spectacular parade of New York's Fifth Avenue to promote an unprecedented federal effort, the National Recovery Administration. Roosevelt called the NRA a partnership in planning between government and industry. Its goal, to speed recovery by establishing profit levels for business and wage levels for labor. In a show of national solidarity, More than two
1: million employers across the country promised to abide by the NRA codes.
0: Alrighty, thoughts on that authoritarian moment?
1: Yeah, so I mean, the the sort of background to that for folks who don't know is that in the middle of the Great Depression, fascism was kind of the wave. So Mussolini was considered actually in pretty good odor by, by a large swath of the left in the United States. The same thing was true of Stalin and even Hitler. I mean, Hitler was featured as Time Magazine's Man of the Year in 1936. The, the Walter Durantes of the world were still going over to the Soviet Union and talking about how wonderful things were over there. And Jonah Goldberg talks about this at length in uh, in his book, Liberal Fascism. Mm-hmm. But the NRA was the federal government saying to private businesses, we need you to put up this patriotic symbol in your window. And this is how we know that you are abiding by our request for you to limit your profit and also give certain wages to particular people. And there was actual governmental pressure to the market saying, like, only shop at places that are showing you this special sign, this blue eagle, which is... Really creepy and authoritarian for sure.
0: I also kind of feel like we're going that way down the slippery slope with the CDC regulations of like where you are allowed to and and not go. But I'm sure we'll have some questions related to that. And if you are just tuning in, this is another reminder that in order to purchase a signed copy of Ben's new book, The Authoritarian Moment, you can head on over to dailywire.com slash Ben. So let's sign some books. Give some hardworking, well-paid people here at The Daily Wire who uh, got these ready. I'm so tempted to sign one, but I don't want to disappoint poor Christina in Tarrytown, New York. Be like, who the heck is Alicia Krause and (laughs) why did she sign Ben Shapiro's book? So she wants to say, ask you this question. Thanks to our mainstream media asking Joe Biden real hard-hitting questions, we now know that his favorite flavor of ice cream is chocolate chocolate chip. What is your go-to ice cream flavor?
1: Wow, Uh, so Carvel is the big thing Uh out here. Uh Um, And so Carvel does have uh, a cake batter flavor that is oh. excellent. It's oh. like a cookie butter flavor also. That one's really good. I- I'm big into ice cream. They also have like a, a toffee alcohol flavored thing that's, that's <laughs> Wait. excellent.
0: Wait, what? You like alcohol now?
1: I like alcohol flavor. I'm, I'm still not. I'm still a child. I was going to say how Florida has changed you. <laughs> well, I mean, I always drank Florida drinks, right? I always had like the pina colada and I look like a 60... 60- Basically, this is my place, right? I'm like an 80-year-old Jew who drinks pina coladas on the beach. Like, Yeah. You've known me long enough to know that, like, I was always a, Flo- I was always Florida man. It was just a question of time.
0: All righty. This next cu- uh, question comes from Sean. Sean, Ben's going to sign your book right now. He's in Newberg, Oregon, and he says it seems like a lot more people have woken up to the current authoritarian trend. However, most people seem to be remaining silent. Like you had mentioned, people are afraid of speaking out, right? What do you think it will take? for more people to start speaking up while everyone else seems afraid
1: to do so. So the big thing is a feeling of momentum. So there always have to be a few people who step out front and then mobilize everybody else because the the dike has been breached and now you know th- there can sort of be a movement. You saw this with critical race theory. It took mm-hmm. a, a few parents to get up and start saying things. That's a receive a lot of media attention. A lot of other people got up and they said, oh, wow, there are people who agree with me. One of the things that the sort of conspiracy of silence that has occurred on social media and in the media with regard to dissenting views has done is make you feel like you are by yourself, like you are alone, uh, like you are you in see, a vast all minority. All your
0: friends posting all these hashtag it's BL, them, Right,
1: exactly. Like, it's it's yeah. Black Square time. All yeah. of your friends are going to be, po- it's, it's Pride Month. You have to post the, the rainbow pride flag or yeah. something. And if you don't do it, then you are definitely on the outs with all of your friends and family. And if you say, listen, I really don't, like this is my thing, then you're by yourself because you've done something wrong. And but your the silence truth, is violence. Your silence is violence. Well, they did, it, this is one of the points I make in the book, they morphed, the left has morphed from, be polite, right? Just don't say anything that's super offensive to speech is violence. And if you say something that offends me, you've actually committed an act of violence upon me to silence is violence, which is you must mirror every single thing I say. And if you do not, you have done an act of violence to me. But I think the bottom line is that We have to create a feeling that there are a bunch of other people who think like you. And I think that's one of the things that the book is pointing out. If you think that you're in the minority because you think that men are men and women are women, you are not. That is a majority position in the United States. If you think that you're in the minority because you don't believe that the United States is inherently racist or that the institutions of the United States were founded in racism or that the cops are racist, if you think that that's a minority position, that is not a minority position. That is a majority position. It's just that you've been told by all of these institutional players who control your means of, of garnering information, that that's just a fringe. These are not fringe positions. These are majority positions.
0: But back to Sean's question, who does it take to step out and say something in order for people like Sean and others who are using Jane Doe when they ask Ben Shapiro question on public internet because they're afraid of the ramifications, who does it take?
1: You have to organize inside your own companies. I mean, what this really requires is collective action. You need... Yeah, if you, you need basically 10 to 20% of your company to mobilize with you. So find people with whom you can have solidarity. If it's a 100 percent company, see if you can find 15 or 20 other people who agree with you. And then do exactly what the left does. Write a letter to the, to the people who run the company and say, you know what? We're not even asking for you to mirror our political priors. All we're asking for is neutrality. And once the people at the top of the company realize there's somebody pushing back, neutrality would be the the sort of default position that they should be seeking.
0: All right. Next question is William in Virginia Beach, Virginia. Great town. He wants to ask, do you see the Republican Party ever winning back the majority in Virginia or are we just screwed here?
1: Uh, I think that the Republican Party is going to do shockingly well in Virginia this election (laughs) cycle. I, I think that the Virginia government is pushing nearly every Radical policy I can think of, and that legislature is not solid blue. That is a, that is a, it's a blue legislature, but not by much. It's still fairly narrow in Virginia, and let's recall that they have had Republican governors fairly recently, mm-hmm. uh, and so the 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 DC suburbs have turned Virginia a lot more blue, obviously. But as the DC as the sort of Virginia legislature starts to push anti gun stuff and pro abortion stuff, and as they start to push critical race theory stuff. There's going to be blowback. One of the one of the mitigating factors that has allowed Democrats to, to gain ground in places like Virginia is that Virginia is a very suburban state. Donald Trump really underperformed in the suburbs, but He's not on the ballot anymore, and this is a real problem for Democrats come 2022 and 2024.
0: Yeah, you talked about that a little bit on your show today. The breakdown of, oh, are all these anti-vax people really Donald Trump voters? And maybe it's just mainstream Democratic Party is going to have to figure out how to, you know, win those people back. Mm -hmm. All right, next question is for Andrew in Millport, New York. He wants to know, how can he co-parent with someone that has completely opposite political views as me and a totally different outlook on the world and how to raise a child?
1: Andrew, what did you do? I would. What did you? What did you? Are you already marry. Right, exactly. already let's, ring Let's on start it? from the beginning here. So <laughs> you skipped my first piece of marital advice, which is do not marry somebody who does not share your values. But if you if you didn't, then you're going to have to find some deeper values that you at least share. Uh, and those values don't necessarily have to be sort of top-line political uh, in nature. Those can be values like you value freedom of speech and intelligence of and you value data, right? You can, you can go to kind of vague concepts that you can agree on. And then you have to make a deal with each other, which is that you are not going to argue with each other about politics in front of the kids. right? That it, it It's it's not good for kids to believe that their parents are arguing with each other all the time, especially about sort of world events and worldview, because all that's going to do is, is confuse. You can have a discussion. That's fine. But if, if it gets heated, then you really have, like protect your kids. Right. This is about your kids. It's not about you.
0: All right. Next question comes from Dom in Chesterfield, New Jersey. What career path does one take when pursuing a degree in constitutional law? He said, thank you and God bless you and your family, sir. Oh, that's very
1: nice. OK, so uh, there, you know, there's not really such a thing as a degree in constitutional law per se. There's a law degree mm-hmm. and then you can sort of specialize in constitutional. I can take special classes in that. You could theoretically get a Ph.D. Uh, in, in sort of constitutional history. Um, but when you go to law school, it's not as though you graduate as a tort lawyer. You just graduate as a lawyer and then you go work in a particular sphere unless you're searching for a Ph.D. Uh, that, that's sort of the answer there.
0: OK, next quest- question comes from Cole in Missouri. He says, hey, Ben, how will actors be able to be a part of the u- upcoming future of Daily Wire productions like your shows and films, etc.?
1: So we, we are going to be doing casting calls. We are going to be doing auditions for all of this sort of stuff. I know that we are already in production on a new film like as of right now. Ooh. I think actually we're in production on two new films as of right now. So, um, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll put out the casting call when and when and if we require additional cast. Right now, uh, a lot of the films that we're pursuing tend to be smaller casts. They're not like casts of, of thousands, um, but uh, we're definitely gonna be doing that.
0: Not, not quite yet. One day you guys could be the Marvel of the conservative film world. I
1: mean, first the Marvel, I mean the Marvel of the Marvel film world is starting to suck. Did you see Black Widow? No. Yeah, it's not good. Is it bad? It is not good. I... The first, The first half hour is kind of good. And then, and then it falls apart.
0: I just, I wasn't interested just based on the trailer, which is really sad because I loved her storyline in the last two Avengers.
1: Well, I mean, so first of all, they were supposed to bring it out before the last Avengers, yeah. like before she was dead. Yeah. Now it's kind of awkward because she's dead. Yeah. But what's weird about that is that she died in a fall, right? In Infinity War, she dies falling down. And um, in Black Widow, she falls from everything it is possible to fall from and is totally fine and, un- and unharmed. So I know what it was about like the cliff in Infinity War that was like- It the, was the planet. Yeah, it was like-, it was,
0: like it was extra inertia Higher or gravity, something. I don't know,
1: like bigger planet. <laughs> but whatever it is, like that is the only fall that has ever hurt her and it didn't just hurt her, it killed her. It killed because in this film, she falls off, she goes through two separate car crashes where the car flips over and lands on the roof. She climbs out, she's fine. She goes, she like falls off an actual roof that's like four stories high. She just gets up, brushes herself off and, and walks away. In Infinity War, like, they should have killed her in a different way because it's really inconsistent.
0: Interesting. All right, there you go. Come here to hear political thoughts from Ben. Stick around for the Marvel movie <laughs> critique. The next question is from Craig. Second Craig tonight from Milwaukee, Wisconsin. What is one fun, memorable moment that you have growing up? Uh, I'm going to take a wild guess, and it has something to do with baseball, maybe?
1: Okay, so, yeah, why don't I do a baseball story? So, I have a bunch, but this is a good baseball story. So, um, I'm... Ten years old. Mm-hmm. Uh, my dad is coaching my little league team, and I have two cousins. One of whom is on the team. One of whom is coaching. And our team was good. We won the the little league Jewish championship that year. Which let me tell you is Sorry, like winning. I
0: thought you were going to say your team sucked.
1: Oh no, I'm actually my I,
0: expectation. I'm actually
1: a pretty good baseball player. or At least I was when I was ten. <laughs> and uh, and so there was one team that was really heavily favored to beat us. And so my dad, on the way to the game, he turns to us. We're in the car. It's a Toyota Tercel, no air conditioning from 1993 or something. And uh, and he says. If we win today, I'm taking you guys out, and I'm getting a beer. And I'm 10, my cousin's 11, my other cousin's like 13. And so we go out, we play the game. It's like 95 degrees out and yeah. somebody forgot to bring water, right? There's no water oh, for the whole game. My gosh. We win, we win game eight to five. And on the way back, my dad just pulls into like the, the supermarket parking lot and he parks. And we're like, what are you doing? He's like, well, we're getting beer. And i are like, okay. So he takes us inside, he turns to my 13 year old cousin. Yeah. And he's like, what kind of beer do you want? And my cousin's like, I like history. How about Sam Adams? So my dad buys like a six pack of Sam Adams. We drive up into the Hollywood Hills, like where there are no houses. And he breaks open like three of the beers. He doesn't drink. He breaks open three of the beers for us. He gives each one of us a beer. My my older cousin takes one sip. He says, this tastes terrible. Yeah. Not interested. I, I had about like one third of the beer. Yeah. And I was like, you know, beer does not taste good, right? It's not like you have to be kind of an adult to appreciate beer. Except if you're my 11-year-old cousin, my my cousin who's like one year older was a big kid, and he takes it in like three gulps, like the entire beer. Because he
0: was thirsty. Right. He's he hadn't had, like, had this anything to drink. Decent enough. Beer
1: on a hot day actually tastes great, right? It starts the you beer can feel this. a hot the... day, it's amazing. Exactly. So it's it's fr- we're frying. There's no air conditioning in the car, and it's 95 degrees out. So my cousin just downs the entire beer in like three gulps, and then my dad is like, "Okay, we're gonna go home now." We start driving. We're on the freeway, and suddenly we look over and we realize that my cousin Joel has the beer bottle out the window of the car. He's just waving the beer bottle around. And my dad's like, Joel, get, it, get the beer bottle in here. I'm going to get arrested. And so we're all tackling Joel in the backseat. So yeah, good times. That
0: is hilarious. I call your dad Papa Sox.
1: My dad's the best.
0: Because, you know, you guys are White Sox yeah, fans. Yeah, that's true. And like, those type of stories just make me love him My dad is the best.
1: Everybody loves my dad. All
0: right. This question comes from Hala. I hope I'm saying your name right. From Bay City, Michigan, beautiful state, especially in the summertime. Who is your favorite authoritarian leader to educate leftists about because they seem to just always idolize them?
1: Um, Well, you know, it's kind of hard because when you talk about people who are full authoritarians, the closest thing that we've had in the United States to a full authoritarian leader was Woodrow Wilson. Mm -hmm. And the left is beginning to have a rethink on Woodrow Wilson, not because they cared about the authoritarianism, Racism. mainly because he's a racist. And so we, which is true, he was a vicious, horrible racist. Yep. Also, he was a radical authoritarian who literally arrested his political opponents, took control of like the entire economy of the United States and radically shifted the definition of how the government was supposed to deal with the individual citizen. So he was a horrible leader, one of the worst presidents of all time. And it's, it's been amazing to see the historic recapitulation of his role. So he went for like 15 years ago, if you took a poll of historians, because historians are congenitally biased toward presidents who quote unquote do things, who are active. <laughs> Woodrow Wilson was always a top 10 president for historians like 10 years ago. Now he's like a bottom 20 president for historians. And that's not because they've re- they, they've kind of re-looked at the fact that he was kind of in favor of eugenics and the fact that, that he, he shut down free speech and all that. Uh, they're really pissed at him because he was a racist. That's mm-hmm. that's the single factor analysis that, that we do now of a president. And it's a very important factor. It is it is. There are many other reasons why Woodrow Wilson is one of the worst presidents of all time.
0: All righty, so he's the one that you should educate all of your left-leaning friends about when it comes to authoritarianism. And I don't know, if you're a brave soul, you could go to dailywire.com slash Ben and buy them a signed copy of his book, right? You could. It's a good way to test your friendships. This Thomas, he's in Belgium. They got some good beer over there. Send us some, Thomas, pretty please. Have you ever considered doing a comparison of the United States and EU politics?
1: Uh, I've talked about it sort of tangentially Mm -hmm. a little bit. Uh, There there are some pretty wide differences between American-style conservatism and uh, European-style conservatism particularly. So the left in Europe looks very much like, the, the social democratic left looks very much like the Democratic Party here in the United States, although the Democratic Party in the United States is now actually exporting really weird radical policies to the EU, to the extent that you now have sort of mainstream center left figures in the EU going, we don't want any of that, Mm. right? You have Emmanuel Macron in France going, we don't want any of your woke crap. Don't bring that over here. You're starting to see that in Britain too. And it's really fascinating to see that we have now outstripped the Europeans in terms of radicalism, because it used to be all of their bad ideas ended up over here. You'd have progressivism starting in Germany in the 1890s, suddenly it makes its way over here, or existentialism in the 30s making its way over here. Um, But uh, now I guess we export all of our bad ideas over there. The big distinction between conservatives there and conservatives here is conservatives there look a lot more like the sort of nationalist populists here, they're kind of like Tucker Carlson in terms of politics, uh, whereas conservatives traditionally in the United States have been much more small government libertarian-minded.
0: Alrighty, this question comes from Aaron, who is in Tipton, West Midlands, United Kingdom. A lot of foreigners. Is that today. like is that like city, county, and country? I don't know. I think so. All right. He says, hey, Ben, what advice would you give a fellow libertarian conservative running in their school elections where most of the electorate are quite liberal? And do you think turning a bit squishy in the messaging would help the campaign?
1: Um, I I tend to think not. Uh, I, I think that it depends on what you mean by squishy. So the nice thing about being, quote unquote, conservative libertarian is that you have a really good pitch. And the pitch is stop being a jackass and bothering other people. Right. That is the pitch for conservative libertarians. It's it's you guys want to boss everybody else around and bother everybody else. And I don't want to do that. So I don't know why you can't leave me alone and I can't leave you alone. Mm -hmm. And for young people, it's a pretty good pitch because young people mainly want to be left alone to do whatever it is that they want to do. Uh, And so I I don't think that you have to water down that particular message. All right.
0: All right. So it looks like we might have another authoritarian moment coming up. Dang. God,
1: that freaks me out every time. Is this your boot? It is not. I don't even know what size this is.
0: (laughs) This one is another authoritarian moment, but this time it's from a different country, not the United States, from Russia. Circa 1945, and a parade held, man, these authoritarians and their parades, men. They
1: do love their parades.
0: I do love their military parades, usually, held after the defeat of Germany in World War II.
1: Russia hails victory in Moscow's Red Square during her May Day Parade. Above the tomb of Lenin stands Marshal Stalin taking the salute from a great cavalcade of Soviet military strength. American officers are guests at the ceremony, watching famous Katusha rocket guns on trucks made in the USA.
0: All right, so can you break down what was happening there?
1: Yeah, I mean, that's the end of World War II, obviously, and that is the brief moment in time when the United States thought that the Russians were uh, were our allies, which lasted for approximately two and a half seconds. Um, because there is a good case to be made uh, that the Russians actually started World War II. That, that it was the USSR. I mean, the the Molotov-Ribbentrop uh, Pact really began World War II. Mm. And without the backing of the Soviet Union, there is very little chance that the, the the Germans turn and wheel and and strike the West. So uh, the Stalin's got off gotten off pretty easy in sort of the the historical analysis of who are the worst dictators of all time. Mail got off super easy. Right? If you like, if you have to rank worst dictators of all time. There's a solid case that Mao is actually number one, considering the number of people that he killed, mm-hmm. um, and uh, and that Stalin is number two, and that Hitler is number three, and that's coming from somebody. I am no Hitler fan. Let me tell you, Hitler, not great, but hit. Like if you're going to rank these people, you don't have to. they can you say they all are evil and horrific because because they were. But in terms of long-lasting impact on the world, Stalin was was a much more effective, dangerous, and uh, and threatening mass murderer over the course of you know, decades, right? I mean, he, he ruled the Soviet Union from the 20s all the way through the, through the mid-50s, basically, as opposed to Hitler, who was in charge of Germany from 1933 until essentially 1945, and, um, and whose defeat resulted at least in the liberation of half of Europe, as opposed to anywhere Stalin put his boots, that place ended up being a, a repressive hellhole.
0: All righty, hence the reason why, if you buy your signed copy of the book, it's like very simple, but good cover art. Because it works. Oh, thank you. Because you, you yeah. talk about like- I drew it living... myself. I did not. You? Oh, I, no, I, would have, not. I wouldn't be surprised if you told me your daughter did. She's talented. She is talented. <laughs> but because it's- but I don't have
1: a drawing jackboots. There's absolutely. a reason
0: why we have the the phrase of like under the heel of. Because too many times in in world history, there have been so many authoritarians. That... This is
1: one of the few times when they actually asked me like for ideas on cover art. Mm-hmm. And I said a jackboot because yep. the, the phrase that came to mind is the is the old Orwell phrase that it's just a boot stamping on the human face forever from 1984, and that—that that is what I think people are feeling like in a soft fashion, obviously. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's—it's it's growing and it's getting worse. And you, you are starting to see institutions. People feel so put upon by their institutions, and it's—it's it's story after story, day after day, on topics that used to seem really non-controversial, and now if you say basic statements of fact, you're afraid that you are going to be unpersoned, and that's—that is a, a deeply disturbing situation.
0: Absolutely. Next question comes from Patrick in Colorado Springs, Colorado. That reminds me of my Adventures in Odyssey days as a child. All right. How does the right fight against the weaponization of the population movement?
1: Um, so I, I, I'm trying to figure out exactly what they mean by weaponization of population movement. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I guess what they presumably mean is the left trying to move populations either from abroad or at home within the within the country to try and change the politics. So I'm not a big believer that immigration per se uh, is, a, is a threat to the United States. I think that the United States is a sovereign country. We get to determine whether people entering the country add to or detract from the country. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm generally very pro-immigration, um, but I think that we ought to you know, make sure that the people who are entering the country are presumed to share our values. And and so the idea that we're going to you know, bring people in who don't share our values for any reason doesn't seem like a net win for the citizens of the United States. Uh, as far as population movement inside the country, right now the sort of big sort that's happening where people who are blue are staying in blue states and people who are red are leaving. I'm not sure that's bad for the country, frankly. I mean, I think that it's it's bad long-term. Um, it's better if the country, you, you live next door to somebody who you disagree with and you can still share a country, but as the left gets more and more uh, authoritarian, as I say in the book, um, yeah, I, I think that people who are you know oriented toward conservatism have a very good case for leaving. I mean, I will say quality of life is radically improved for my family, not living in a a heavily blue area.
0: I think also at what point will the mainstream media be unable to hide their uh, detest for uh, red states? Red states continue to do so well and blue states continue to fail.
1: At a certain point, reality is going to set in for some of these blue states. You're starting to see it in California with the recall of Newsom, right? They're they're like seven Republicans in California by comparison with the Democrats. Mm -hmm. I mean, they're still the most Republicans of any state because it's a huge state, but by comparison, I mean, Republicans control nothing in yep. the government anywhere across the state of California, basically. And, uh, and Newsom is going to get recalled because Democrats are not good at governing.
0: We're gonna do it. It's gonna be lots of fun. This next question comes from Matt in Mannheim, Pennsylvania. He says he's a 20-year-old law enforcement veteran who is completing his doctorate, and he wants to add himself to the best list of doctors. I am hoping to break into academia to teach criminal justice, and we talk about changing the culture in academia, but don't have a direction on how to begin. So, do you have any advice on how to begin the process?
1: So first, you have to find a faculty advisor who's actually going to allow you to write on topics that are controversial, and mm. this is. A, this a hard thing. One of the things that's happened in the university system is that the university system basically creates this self-perpetuating elite where professors who are left-wing tend to approve uh, theses that are are left-wing. And so you have to find somebody who's willing to oversee your thesis if it happens to be a right-wing thesis. And then the reality is that you can do an awful lot uh, with a position at not even a particularly prestigious college. There are a lot of professors uh, in sort of the conservative movement who are famous and have done extraordinary work Uh, from perches at not particularly well-known colleges. One of the sort of criminal justice minds who comes to mind right now is Wilfred Riley, who teaches at Eastern Kentucky University. It's not an Ivy League school, but the work that he's doing is deeply important. Uh, And uh, and I think that... You know, from a perch at a university, you can do a lot, of, a lot of good.
0: All right. This question comes from Scott in Irvine, Scotland. Ha, Scott in Scotland. How do we prevent institutions from becoming weaponized in the future?
1: So, the, the unfortunately, the only way to do this would be to either have everybody understand weapons down or we just have mutually assured destruction. Those are the only two options. Right now, there's this kind of wing of the conservative movement that's like, well, we should never use mutually assured destruction. You know, let them be the bad guys and we'll be the good guys and we'll sit over here and get our butts kicked. And, and that's not a good strategy. I mean, at a certain point, we have to convince the left that the best thing to happen here is to go back to neutrality with these institutions. And if they don't, then we're going to do to these institutions what they do the, to the institutions, because we can't just sit there and allow them to run roughshod over purportedly neutral institutions and then turn those against us, that we, we just can't do that.
0: All right, next question comes from my home state and it is Eric in Yukon, Oklahoma. Do you believe that a conflict between China and the United States will actually happen? And do you have a prediction of the outcome of such a conflict? You
1: know, it's hard to imagine an open military conflict between the United States and China directly. I think that what is much more imaginable is some form of, of proxy war in Taiwan uh, or some form of proxy war in the South China Sea. And China does not want to get into a shooting war with the United States because we will win. Uh, we, we still do have significantly more military firepower. We, we're the greatest military force in the history of the world still, uh, and China knows that. Um, but what China also understands that we are really, really reticent to use force with regard to China. And they've got a lot of our corporations over a barrel because we opened our, our markets to them uh, and they opened their markets conditionally to our corporations. Uh, and so I think that the most likely scenario is a gradual ratcheting up of tensions the possibility of a shooting war exists, but it would be mainly if, if there is a mistake of intent, mm-hmm. right? Where China thinks, okay, well, if we move on to Taiwan militarily, the U.S. isn't going to do anything, and then the U.S. feels that its its line has been crossed, and the U.S. responds in kind. But uh, and, and that is why it's it's so ridiculous that the West has has basically done nothing in the face of Chinese predation. Like now would be an excellent time to start severing economic ties with China, and if that costs Americans money. Frankly, I think Americans are kind of up for it, considering the Chinese just unleashed a virus that has killed at least 4 million people worldwide, including 600,000 Americans.
0: Yep. All right, next question comes from Tyler, who is at McGuire Air Force Base. He says, with the power that social media has is and as it continues to grow, do you think that there will be a time in the future in which it becomes regulated by the federal government? And if so, what are your thoughts on
1: that? Uh, I'm deeply afraid that it will become regulated by the federal government. And there are a couple of different ways that you could theoretically regulate social media. One is a not bad way and one is a horrific way. This is why when you see people like, oh, the left and the right, they agree, social media ought to be regulated. No, they, they do not, actually. The left would like Elizabeth Warren to sit over social media and determine what good content looks like. And I think that, for the most part, people on the right would like For social media to go hands-off in terms of policing quote-unquote misinformation because we just don't trust their standards as to what misinformation constitutes. I think that, as I've suggested before, maybe the proper solution is to get rid of what's called the catch-all clause in Section 230 of the Communications Decency Act. Uh, That that would probably be the best sort of policy solution. There's not widespread agreement for that. However, I just, I I can't see, given the amount of ire that social media has drawn, uh, that there won't be a president of some party who just, in order to get the win, does something in terms of policy that ends up centralizing more power in the federal government. The solution to failures of social media is not to give the idiots who staff the federal government more power.
0: Oh, and it's always, I always tell people, think of the shoe on the other foot. Yeah, it's, it's like, you a might problem. like it when Biden's in there, but you ain't going to like it if it's somebody else. But yeah, only right. <laughs> this question comes from Luke in Pensacola, Florida, who says, hey, Ben, welcome to Florida. I know you've said you're not interested in public office, but we could really use your help filling the shoes of Governor DeSantis when he wins the presidency in 2024. Hey, name it, claim it, man. Name it, claim it, please. And thank you. Love your stuff.
1: Oh, I mean, from your mouth to God's ears. With regard to Governor DeSantis, he would be an excellent president. He's an excellent governor. um Why would I ever run for office? It sounds absolutely horrendous. You make less money. Wait, are you kidding? Like, how many people are buying books right now? <laughs> like, like, right this very instant.
0: How is this possible? I
1: mean, it's incredible. But also, also like, uh, the, the reality is that, that campaigning and asking people for money and having to shade my message because I want to win office. And, like, I've worked at a 501c3 and going to people and asking them for money is really uncomfortable and really kind of terrible. And then if you win, then you go live in Tallahassee, right, which is, like, okay, I guess, but not, not.
0: His love for the Sunshine State only goes so
1: far, folks. Well, I mean, then what kosher restaurants are there in Tallahassee? How do I even eat? I me do it. I'm just like picking lettuce out of the garden. Then I'm your like,
0: assistant would be like flying you in kosher food on your jet and then it would be a whole thing. No, but we just established
1: I'm way less rich if I'm a politician. So, yeah.
0: All righty then. I mean, you could go the Mitt Romney route and fund your own campaigns. And well,
1: Here's stuff. the good news. I'm 37 years old. So if in 30 years I decide to run for president, I will still be the youngest person running for president. So... <laughs> I, 30 years of money making and then and my kids growing up and then we can talk about it.
0: All right, this question comes from New South Wales, Australia. The question comes from Adrian who says, considering that the left runs most organizations and institutions, at what point do you think the right will be proactive in their political approach rather than playing catch up? I have the same exact question, girl. Also, when the timing is appropriate, given the current pandemic, would you consider coming to Australia to do a special?
1: So I think the answer is right now. I think the right is getting much more active. And then as far as coming to Australia, I would love to come to Australia if they ever open up again. Yeah. I mean, it is incredible. They're, they're shutting down Australia now for like four cases of COVID. This is nuts. I mean, the, the book I really focus, I, I do have a chapter on the perversion of science in the book about the the attempt to turn science as a process into science as the institution and then the use of science as an institution to just push forward a bunch of crap that is completely anti-scientific, which is what you're seeing with regard to COVID and masking policy and lockdown policy again. But I mean, the, the actual governmental authoritarianism that we are now seeing and being accepted by heretofore free peoples, people being like, yeah, you know, I understand that there's no science to back this, but sure, I'm still going to mask up in front of my children or I'm going to mask my children. Or what if we all just lock down here because there's one case of COVID? Like, what are we? Are we that fearful of regular life that we that we're willing to give this much power to idiot bureaucrats? Like these people can't even tie their own shoes and you're telling them they can rule your life. Has anyone ever met a politician and been like, man, I wish that guy were in charge of my bank account. Not a single human being has ever had this. Oh man, that, that, that guy who's my congressman, I can't wait to have him come over and babysit my kids. Not a single human being has ever had that thought. And yet we're like, what if they just told us how to handle our bank account, or tell us how to raise our kids. How about no? How about no to all of this garbage?
0: All right, the next question comes from Oliver, who is in Melbourne, Australia. Man, you got lots of Aussie fans, that's super cool, who says, dear Ben, how important is it that the United States keeps its strong relationships with countries like their home in Australia when it comes to issues such as China and other international events taking place in the Indo-Pacific?
1: Hugely important. So people neglect the fact that Australia is super duper close to China, Mm -hmm. and that the, the Western country that is actually feeling the heat the most right now is Australia. China has threatened to cut off business ties. It has threatened to close shipping lanes to Australia. Uh, Australia is an ally. Japan is an ally. We have a lot of allies in that region. There are things that we can do there. Yeah, uh, you know, Frankly, I think that, that re-entering some form of the Trans-Pacific Partnership, which was actually a trade block that was directed against the Chinese, would be a, would be a good thing. But yeah, I mean, Australia needs to stand strong, and we need to be right behind them for sure.
0: All right. So, next question comes from Elisa. Elisa I hope Elisa in Myereto, California. What is one of your favorite fictional books or book series? That's a good one. Oh
1: man, I have so many fiction books that I absolutely adore. Uh, the one that I actually just bought a signed autograph copy of a book. Uh, that uh, it was in a copy of Fahrenheit 451 by Bradbury, which I think is just a masterwork, uh, and it's so it's so well read that it's actually underrated, right? This happens sometimes, there's a movie that's been seen so many times that, yeah. and people are like, it's such a great movie. And then you watch it and you're like, it actually is a great movie, right? Yeah. Wizard of Oz is one of those movies where people are like, it's one of the great movies of all time, it's so unbelievable. And then everybody watches it and you forget how good it is and then you watch it again and you're like, oh, this is a tremendous film. Same thing with uh, Fahrenheit 451. Uh, as, as yeah, All the Russians are, are great and depressing. Uh, the uh, Mark Twain is fantastic. I'm a big fan of Herman Melville's writing uh, Harper Lee is great. I mean, To Kill a Mockingbird is fantastic. There, there are a couple of more obscure books that I really like and always recommend. If you're looking for like an obscure novel, a, a depressing but wonderful obscure novel is called Every Man Dies Alone by a guy named Hans Vallada, uh, which is about uh, a couple resisting the Nazis in like 1941 Germany. Uh, and, the, and the other book is a book called The Secret of Santa Vittoria, which is also a World War II book, but like much more enjoyed it's by a guy named Robert Crichton. It was a big bestseller. They made a movie out of it with Anthony Quinn. Uh, and it's a it's a really really fun read. It's a great book.
0: Are you like read the book before you watch the movie, guy? Always, yeah. So I recently this year, and our friend Bethany Mandel in our homeschooling curriculum read uh, the the Nathaniel Bowditch, which is a good and apparently it was one of the first Disney films, but it's not on Disney Plus. Well, my girls were why so was it
1: different. was it racist or something? No,
0: I don't know. I think it or was,
1: just, was it not racist? and They called it racist, like Lady and the Tramp.
0: Probably, actually. All right, next question comes from JK in Nashua, New Hampshire. Hey, Ben, will the Dodgers regret having spent so much money on the Mookie Betts contract? I don't I don't do not sports ball, guys, so I hope I'm saying that name right. You, you, did, you,
1: did say it, you did say it right. Uh, yes. Okay. I mean, yes, they, they spent an awful lot of money on How Mookie Betts. How much money Betts. did they spend? Oh, uh, what was it, $250 million or something? Uh, something like that. It was, it was an unbelievable amount of money. Now, listen, the Dodgers are still a good team. I mean... They're not gonna like go bankrupt, but it's uh, but yeah that they spent a lot of money on that contract.
0: And how are your socks doing? I don't. My socks
1: are good this year. Really? Yes, they good ha- they're you. good, and they have a lot of they have a lot of guys on the DL. They're coming back off the DL. Uh, they, they have the best pitching staff in the majors. The, disa- down- disa- the download the disa- disa- disabled list.
0: Oh okay. Yeah. All right. Next question comes from Jack in Wesley Chapel, Florida. Hello. He has a couple of questions. You only get one book though, okay, Jack? What's in your opinion, the most damaging thing to America the Biden administration has done so far? And secondly, do you think that Trump has a better shot of winning in 2024 or dissentist? Thank you in advance.
1: Okay. so. most damaging thing that Biden has done. So I'm going to put this on three tracks because I think that there are three really, really damaging things that he's doing. Damaging thing number one Mm -hmm. is that he came into office pledging to be a unifying moderate. And then he has proceeded to polarize America along racial lines with all this crap about how if you're in favor of voter ID, then it's the same as Jim Crow. And that is radically exacerbating social problems in the United States. Problem number two is he's spending more money than has ever yet been created by man or God. uh, And that is going to have significant downstream effects. It's already having inflationary effects right now. But reshifting the way that Americans think about The economy is a really bad thing and it's going to have real consequences over the next decade or so, including extraordinarily slow growth. And finally, I think that his entire approach to foreign policy, which seems to be to revivify connections with countries that are terrible, like Iran, uh, while kowtowing to China and Russia and pulling completely out of Afghanistan. I I know that there's a position on the right that says pulling out of Afghanistan is a great idea. I just, I don't understand that position, to be frank with you. It doesn't. It does, we're not talking about an active war zone. We've had one combat casualty in Afghanistan over the last 18 months. It is more dangerous to be a cop in Chicago than it is to be a soldier, an American soldier in Afghanistan these days. And keeping a small footprint there to keep, for example, Bagram air base so that we can launch airstrikes against the Taliban seems to me significantly more important than Joe Biden getting a very temporary political win that is going to redound, by the way, in, you watch, the, the date today, it's, it's July 27th. We're supposed to be pulling out Basically, within the next couple of weeks. I love it but,
0: when, we, when we announce military pullouts too. So that's like, always Obama great. That's
1: always great. I guess we're supposed to pull out completely by September 11th, as though this is some sort of win, which is amazing. I mean, th- like that is so tone deaf; it's unbelievable. So we're going to hand back Afghanistan on the anniversary of September 11th to the people who housed the people who committed September 11th. I just, I, it's, it's mind-boggling. By the end of November, you're going to see mass casualties, slaughter, and the American people don't pay attention to foreign policy until they see ugly images on the TV, which means that by in my prediction by summer of next year, we will have troops in a quote unquote advisory capacity back in Afghanistan.
0: All right, next question comes from Jeff in Illinois. As a teacher, oh, God bless you, Jeff, what is the best way to address and debunk the debate of critical race theory within the walls of a school building?
1: So I think that the, the best way to handle it, if you are told to, to handle it, is to explain what critical race theory is and then explain why it's wrong. So critical race theory's basic notion is that neutral things like individual rights are actually just a cover for racial superiority and inferiority and racial hierarchies i think that coming to grips with the falsity of that pointing out that that is not true uh, pointing it's very easy to point out that the evils of american history are replicated nearly everywhere else on earth the good of american history is replicated nearly nowhere else on planet earth and that is a pretty simple way of understanding why it is that the United States is a good country and was founded on good principles, even though the founders very often did not live up to those principles at the time. How's your hand doing? So far, so good, I mean, you're this okay? is, I signed like literally 10,000 book plates the other day, so yeah, oh, I'm oh, doing okay well, so far. Go.
0: We're signing the real deal right now, guys. So, you know, get that ready. I think I have an ice bucket for you at the end. I don't know, my husband uses it when he's grilling on his green egg, but you know, you, I guess you can use it when you're Yeah,
1: sorry. but your husband is like a pirate. <laughs> Eric is a pirate. He's like a Viking pirate.
0: I think once you called him like a, a lumber sexual.
1: Well, that's clearly true.
0: Cause he's like- now, I saw a I picture of him God recently.
1: Them. Yeah, exactly, he's got the beard. but yeah. now he's got like the, he's, he's more Viking now. He's got like the long hair going, I saw. Yeah,
0: it's, it's like- How long is it? Is it like, like shoulder length like, or, like or what? like Vikings mixed with Miami Vice, I think. <laughs> and- and You're a generous wife. <laughs> hey, you know what? It brings home the bacon.
1: Oh, that. Fair, and fair enough. Also, I mean, he, he's a very handsome Viking man. Yes, I mean, let's, and we make beautiful let's babies. Let's be real about it, your, your babies are very cute. So
0: we're staying in California. We're just gonna be fruitful and multiply. And then hopefully in 18 years, the voting block is like there.
1: Yeah, you're delusional, but you know, enjoy enjoy the ride.
0: All right, I think we have another authorit- authoritarian moment. Here we go.
1: One of these days, just gonna hit one of us.
0: <laughs> I know, I'm actually afraid. Elisha, how'd you get that black eye? It was a scheme by the God King. No. <laughs> All right, this one, oh. Uh, this come, Xi Jinping. Yeah, bad guy. Good times. This, this Winnie the is, Pooh over here. Uh, 100th year anniversary of the Chinese Communist Party. You know, the guy's responsible for COVID.
1: Let's take a oh, look. Oh, and the murder of 40 million people in the Great Leap Forward. Yep. Okay, so, yeah, we had a bit of a mic emergency there. Just to let you guys in on the behind the scenes, this turned into a scene from um, Singing in the Rain, like where Lena Lamont is, they're trying to hide the microphone and uh, and it's, uh, it's actually in the bushes, but then it's also like in the bustle and the, yeah, good times. Uh-huh. That's you found such, it though.
0: That's such a good movie though.
1: It's a great movie.
0: Gene Kelly, RIP. All right, so talk about that one.
1: About. Oh, CCP, that? sorry. That I was clip. confused. Do you, so by, confused by my, my, Did you yes. want me
0: to sing? Like, good morning. No,
1: no. Well, I really don't actually. So yes, I'd rather talk about the Communist Chinese <laughs> and, Party.
0: And I gotta say, the audience is like, just get him to sign more books, should Stop with the singing.
1: Yeah, that, that we're all like that very, <laughs> very often. It's been, it's been so long, Elisha. But in any case, um, yeah. So there's Winnie the Pooh riding down the street to the cheers of throngs of people who are cudgelled into place if they, if they don't call uh, Xi Jinping has, has re-enshrined a dictatorship in China mm-hmm. in incredible ways. His predecessor Wang Xiaobo, uh, was was famously a uh, person who was a, supposedly attempting to open the economy, and then it was going to reveal new sort of open politics, and uh, it never happened. It turns out that the going theory in the West, which is that if you provide economic benefit and free trade to dictatorial countries, that this somehow makes them less dictatorial, uh, remains an unproven theory. Uh, and instead, it turns out they're weaponizing capitalism against the West.
0: Yeah, they just it's kind of like Putin. They just give it to all their buddies and their oligarchs until they send you to Siberian camp somewhere. All right. Next question comes from Emile in Quebec City, Quebec, Canada. Just like yourself, I'm a huge fan of Western movies and classical music. Which Western movie score is your favorite? That's a good one.
1: Uh, the, the best one is clearly Magnificent Seven. Oh. That, that is clearly the best Western score. But- Although I do have a, a soft spot for uh, the Dimitri Tiomkin score in uh, Gunfight at the OK Corral because it, it has one of those opening songs where they where they actually sing, you know, about the plot. Yeah, and I, I kind of I kind of dig that. But yeah, the the score to Magnificent Seven is fantastic, and Elmer Bernstein is is the Western composer. It all sounds like Copeland, by the way. It all sounds like Aaron Copeland.
0: Interesting. All right. This comes from Kevin in Tampa, Florida. What is your position on global warming? Is it real or not? And given your reasoning as to why, also, if it is real, will it affect us in the near future?
1: Okay, so the answer is that by all available data that I have seen, uh, global warming is real. Uh, even people who are sort of lukewarmers acknowledge the global warming is real. There's serious debate over how much human activity is affecting global warming and, more importantly, what we can do right now. Because once the carbon is in the air, it stays up there for 10,000 years. It ain't coming down anytime soon. So the, the Kyoto Protocols, for example, if we had undertaken that, it would have really done very little to, to actually lower the trajectory of the climate. The same thing is true of the Paris Accords, which are going to do very little. The number one emitter on planet Earth by far right now is China. Uh, the United States has been lowering its emissions because we have better technology and natural gas which the left doesn't like, apparently, and they also don't like nuclear power. If we actually want to focus on mitigating the effects of global warming, that's gonna be a lot easier and humans are much better at, at, at adapting rather than you know, changing entire ways of life that have added enormous, like carbon-based fossil fuels have been an unbelievable boon to humanity. I mean, people who don't have them are literally burning dung in their homes right now and then dying of the attendant diseases. So fossil fuels are great. The only problem is, of course, that this does have an impact on the climate. That is a slow rolling impact that's going to be felt over the course of the century. Human beings have an excellent way of adapting to this sort of stuff. So if we actually want to spend money on stuff, what we should be spending money on is development of technologies like geoengineering to change the weather if we're that worried about it, or developing technologies to suck carbon out of the air, or building seawalls. If you're worried about Miami being underwater, we need to build some more seawalls. Because there are lots of cities in the United States that exist below the sea level. And the same thing is true, you know, all over the world. But th- there's this sort of weird idea about global warming, that because the earth is gradually warming over the course of the century, that we are going to see catastrophic murder by the environment of billions of people. And or all hundreds the polar millions
0: of are going to die.
1: Right. I mean, and, and none of this has turned out to be true. In ter- it turns out that when people see the weather changing, they tend to move. They tend to leave these particular areas. And that's not great. I mean, that's not ideal. But it also is what humans have done for literally all of human history. I mean, you'll recall that there used to be an actual, like, bridge between Russia on this end and Alaska, right? I mean, Sarah Palin could see it from her house. And and that no longer exists because the climate is constantly changing. And because the water level rises and falls. And you have icebergs that exist, you know, 500 years ago that don't exist now. uh, And that's not the end of the world. It may not be ideal for people who are living in particular places but human beings are great at adaptation it's the one thing that we are the best at we create technologies we move we 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 can change sort of how we how we live what is really hard is to say to everybody right now turn off your air conditioner stop driving your car stop using fossil fuels and it's one thing to say that to a bunch of richy riches in france and, and the uk and the united states but you're gonna say that's somebody who's living in like Djibouti. you're gonna seriously like you're gonna go over to africa and you're gonna say to people you know what you're living on like, in like abject poverty. What we really need from you is to live in abject poverty for like a long time because at least your carbon emissions are really low. Like no, that is not that is not a solution.
0: All right. Next question comes from Rob. I, I'm sorry, Rob. I know you're in the great state of Georgia, but I don't know how to say your your small town name. I, and I'm going to biff it, so I'm not even going to try. He wants to know, how can a young college-age conservative begin to make a difference in the culture war?
1: Okay, so if you are a college-age conservative, you're now a reporter. This is what Andrew Breitbart used to say. You got a cell phone, you're a reporter. There's a lot happening on college campuses that needs to be exposed to the light of day, and you can be one of the people who does that. There's a lot of stuff that's newsworthy. A lot of taxpayer dollars are going into those colleges. A lot of parental dollars are going into those colleges. And the colleges are a font of horrendous ideas that affect the rest of the country. So become a reporter, grab a cell phone, and get to work.
0: And there's great organizations out there like oh, we'll Young America's it. Foundation. We'll
1: print it. And you send us a story, we'll print it.
0: That you're you're going to speak there in a couple of weeks? Right? I am,
1: yeah, yeah. I think next week,
0: that, And, yeah. they. fun. Or a great resource for yep, people. Yeah, it's fantastic. All right, this question comes from Joshua in Kokomo, Indiana. That's funny because I, when I think Kokomo, you I don't think don't Indiana. Think Indiana. All right. Will America's institutions be 100% liberal by 2044?
1: Uh, no, there will just be alternative institutions. If they all turn liberal, there will be alternative conservative institutions, and I will be a lot richer because honestly, like the way that this is going to work is if we end up with one conservative razor company and one liberal razor company, I'm ideally placed to start a conservative razor company. So, like on a personal financial level then fine, bring it. But on a on a country level, I really hope that we can back away from this because it's it's not good that there should be like, you go to the store or two separate stores and now we're just completely segregated in terms of politics. That is not a good thing.
0: Also, what about the people in the middle? Yeah. Like where do they shop?
1: Yeah, they have to buy two razors, I'm not sure.
0: <laughs> Next question comes from Aiden in Fort Worth, Texas. He says, hi, and what is your advice for young conservatives and is it still worth it to go to college?
1: Excellent question. So. When it comes to college, if you are not in a STEM field, I always start with this. If you're in a STEM field, yes, it's worth it to go to college. You're gonna have an actual job connected to your education. Right? My, my wife, being a doctor, it was good for her to be in pre-med before she- What is she? she she's a doctor. Oh, wow. Okay. No, really, it's like it's a cool thing. In fact, I believe that you've called her for advice on occasion. <laughs> <laughs> she's my go-to. Yeah, she, she's, she's useful. <laughs> um, and uh, yeah, so if you're in the STEM field, then yes. If you're in a what we call a North Campus major at UCLA, meaning liberal arts, poli-sci, lesbian dance theory, if you're in any of those things, then you should seriously consider whether it is worth your money and your time. And you might see if you can find an apprenticeship at a business that you think is more worthwhile. If you can't, then yeah, you should go get the college degree because people still use credentialing. The real problem is not individuals deciding to go to college. The real problem is that businesses need to stop screening for college degrees right mm-hmm. now. Screening for college degrees is a stupid thing. There are three business partners here at Daily Wire. Two of the three did not graduate college. I, I went to law school. Right? my Both my business partners did not graduate from college. We don't screen for college degrees at the Daily Wire. If you're qualified Clearly. To do the jo- <laughs> If you're qualified to do the job, then you're here, right? I mean that's that's sort of the way that we approach it. And I think more businesses ought to approach it that way.
0: All right. The next question comes from Megan in Dumfries, Virginia. She says that the country seems to be so politically divided right now. And what suggestions do you have to help bridge the gap between those on the left? and the right, or do you believe that returning to bipartisanship is even possible? So
1: I, I think that so long as the government remains a giant grab bag of cash and power, it's gonna be very difficult for bipartisanship to to prevail because it's just too big. I mean, everybody is going to want to grab a hold of that ring. It's, it's just Lord of the Rings and whoever grabs a hold of the ring doesn't want to let it go. The way that you fix polarization is really easy. You find somebody you disagree with and you say publicly they're a human. I mean, really, it's that simple. And I did this the other day on Twitter just as a thought experiment, right? I tweeted out like, you know, if you're really want to end polarization, what you could do is just list people who, you, who didn't vote like you did in the last election and say they're a nice person that you disagree with, but they're a nice person and you're happy to read their work. And I listed off like 15 people, right? People all the way to like Van Jones on the left, John Lovett, right, of, of Pod Save America. None of, Van, Van might say, something nice about me because Van actually has the stones to stand up for this, right? He worked with Trump um, on on criminal justice reform.
0: Did a movie with Megan McCain.
1: Right, exactly. Like, Van, Van actually has the courage of, of trying to work across the aisle. But I don't think that you're ever going to see somebody like John Lovett say, yeah, Ben Shapiro is somebody who I know is a human being and is nice and, and I respect. Like, the, people just on the left, I noticed that there were a bunch of people on the right who followed up that tweet with, like, here's my list. I couldn't find a blue check mark lefty who did it, not mm-hmm. one. And, and the thing was retweeted, like, 30,000 times mm-hmm. so yeah I think that's kind of telling
0: I, I always do the uh, like the car tire rule that if you had a flat tire on the side of the road who would you trust to help out your daughter and if you don't have somebody like that on, that you're friends with on the other side of the aisle then
1: that's a problem yeah yep
0: all right next question comes from Colin in British Columbia Canada what is your advice to young conservatives like him but in Canada I mean, they're dealing with a lot of stuff right now, specifically the tamping down of, oh, you know, religious gatherings and stuff. A very left-wing country. And how can we make a change that is right for for traditional values in such a woke culture that works to silence us?
1: I mean, I do think there's going to be blowback in Canada as well. I mean, the Conservative Party's been in the wilderness for a bit up there. But I think the blowback will will begin. I mean, Stephen Harper was a popular prime minister there for a while. uh, And I I think that the the left is pushing so hard so fast, whether it's Bill C-16 in Ontario, Uh, or whether it's the crackdown on religious freedom more broadly, uh, I I think there are going to be a lot of people in Canada who eventually are just going to say enough is enough. I think it's happening across the West, by the way. I think it's why it's being manifested in the rise of right-wing parties in Europe, too.
0: Interesting. And a little bit of pushback with CRT, too. Yes. Like here in the States. All right, next question comes from Mitchell in Mount Annan, New South Wales, Australia. He claims that he's your number one fan from Australia. I don't know. He's gotten a lot of Australian fans writing in tonight, but maybe you are, Mitchell. He looks forward to reading your new signed book and keep up the good work, Mr.
1: Shapiro. Well, thank that you. was the that, question. That's, no question. No, that's, just, that's really, just nice. He was just
0: that, giving you nice. an encouraging word.
1: I, I appreciate that. That's
0: that's Because never
1: cool. has heard an encouraging word.
0: <laughs> Patrick from Toledo, Ohio. Any advice on how to write your first book to make a stand in the culture?
1: Uh, outline, uh, research. Uh, the, the, I've written all of my own books, which, you know, can only be said for a few of the authors in this particular space. I was, um,
0: was going to give away some behind the scenes that you've written a few other books, too.
1: Yeah, no, that that is not untrue, um, but it's. But I think that for, for if, you, if you're not used to writing, you really do have to make an outline, and then you have to follow the outline fairly closely, so you have to pre-think kind of where you're going. I've done it so much that I really don't outline anymore. Like, I can sit down and I can just write, uh, but that comes after years, I mean, I've been doing this for nearly two decades. And how many point.
0: bestsellers?
1: Uh, let's see, this would be the fourth New York Times bestseller. This one is is number four, but then there's like another five that <laughs> are under other people's names that I can't talk about contractually, so. Uh,
0: guys. Can you believe that we're to like our final question?
1: Really? Yeah. Wow.
0: I mean, it's been fun.
1: And you came all the way to Florida just for this.
0: Time flies when you're having fun. And the Cuban food. On the Cuban food. Yeah, all right. This comes from Matthew in Man- Mankato? Mankato, Minnesota. Since getting elected, do you think that the president has become a uniter or a divider?
1: Oh, I mean, he's been incredibly divisive. It's, it's really disturbing because again, he was elected to basically do two things. Be not Donald Trump and be dead. Those were the two things. And he, by dint of the fact that he is not Donald Trump, is not Donald Trump, but he has not been quite as dead as I think everybody was promised, meaning that he is physically not alive, but his, his sort of take on politics has been extremely polarizing. Uh, he has decided that it's very important to divide Americans from Americans for political gain. And he's decided that since he is a one-term president, he's gonna be incredibly active, like all the way through, extremely active. Uh, and, and that means he's gonna ram through as many things as humanly possible. You can see it in the numbers, by the way. His approval ratings are down pretty significantly from when he was elected. Uh, And the the biggest number is that the number of Americans who say that they're optimistic about the next 10 years uh, has radically shifted. Even a couple of months ago, almost two thirds of Americans were saying they were optimistic about where the country is going over the next 10 years. And now it's only about a third of Americans who say they're optimistic about the next 10 years.
0: All right, so while Ben signs some more books, I promise I'm gonna not let him leave here without like getting through all of these guys. We have a pretty cool video from some friends. Yes, he's not a robot. He has friends. Hey Ben, I'm about halfway through your new book.
1: I gotta say, it feels like a big step down from your previous work. Congratulations though. What better timing for a book about how the far left is trying to silence dissent in America. Everybody's gotta read this because if you don't understand what's going on, then you can't fight now is the time to fight. Congratulations on the book release. It must have been a stealth release because I didn't hear anything about it on your radio show or your podcast. I knew it was coming out because I listen to the podcast every day. So, as you people would say, mazel tov.
0: Hey, Ben, congrats on the new book. I don't know how you managed to write nine books a year. Well, it takes me nine years to write one.
1: You've done it again. The East Coast must be good for you. Hey Ben, it's Brad Thor. Congratulations on the new book. If anybody knows how tough it is to write one, it's me. I'm really proud of you. I know it's going to be a huge success. Well done. Keep crushing it. Hey Shapiro, I just wanted to offer my deep and sincere and heartfelt congratulations on the publication of whatever the hell your book is called. And I hope the book release party is a lot of fun. And I hope everybody has got four masks on just to make sure that everybody can be perfectly safe. I gotta tell you, I'm, I'm very excited to read this book because you've given me my campaign slogan for 2028, Knowles, The Authoritarian Moment. So I'm, I'm sure it's gonna be great. I'm very much looking forward to it. And congratulations, as always, on another book with words. you made America smarter, wiser, more ethical. We've got a country to save, Ben. As usual, Ben, you are right. The left has weaponized America's institutions against dissent, and I look forward to spending time with you in Gulag three two one A B. Don't worry, I'll bring the cookies. They'll be kosher.
0: <laughs> you doing okay?
1: Yeah, it was it was rougher than I thought it'd be. Uh, really? Yeah.
0: I mean, we didn't get through that many.
1: It's like you know, I'm I'm like an Olympian who couldn't quite make it through. I just had to, you know.
0: I mean, guys, I'm, I'm the hostess with the mostest. I bring the ice bucket for the, that. That's
1: kind of you. I appreciate that. For the
0: writer's hand. All right. So we're done. But it's not too late. Don't worry. You can still purchase your signed copy of The Authoritarian Moment. Just head on over to dailywire.com slash Ben and purchase your copy. For only $30, you can get this book. I should be on QVC.
1: You should. You're really good at this.
0: <laughs> Make Ben richer. Help him stay in Florida and pay less taxes. Good to see
1: you. It's amazing to see you as well. well
0: thanks, thanks And for
1: eventually me. you'll leave and, and escape. And if you don't, then we'll have to come and save you. I thought and you were you. gonna kick
0: like, me out of the studio. I was oh. like, well, fine then. No,
1: no, not like that. I mean, maybe we'll do that, but no. <laughs> it, it, I just have a feeling this entire story ends with us, like me descending in, like Snake Plissken, into California to try and just take you and Eric and the children out. I just don't think it's going to end well in California.
0: You know my family. We already got like the Mad Max Thunder Roadmobile ready. That's true, though. actually. I don't need the to save AR you. The teen 15 on top.
1: That's true. And maybe it'll be, who knows? Maybe it'll be Governor Larry Elder.
0: <sighs> Here's hoping. <laughs> it was good to see you. Thank you everyone for tuning in to this very special live signing of the authoritarian moment. Be sure to go da- to dailywire.com Ben to purchase your autographed copy. And maybe I will see you next time.
1: We'll get to more on this in just one second. First.